The scripture this morning is from Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, made straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill should be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is like, is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, so we're now halfway through our series where we tell the whole story of the gospel. And we're really chugging along now. We're seven weeks in. (laughs) Um, At this point, we're really in the weeds, so let's recap a bit of where we've gone so far. God made a good world where he triumphed over the chaos of non-existence and brought the world into a working order. There was no suffering or evil or chaos at all, but then humans sinned in the Garden of Eden, and that led them to be exiled from God's presence there. But since God wasn't present, that chaos and non-existence and death that God abolished by creating began to seep back into the world. God has to be with us or the world will be unmade. But God began to restore his presence to the world by making a deal with Abraham that his whole family would be the ones to return the presence of God to the world and that God would bless them. His promise to Abraham's family, which became the Israelites, was always, I will be your God and you will be my people. Very quickly, it became obvious to everyone that Abraham's family really was blessed by God and that God was with them. They grew into a whole big nation, and God gave them a beautiful land. He lived among them in a tent, moving around wherever they went, and eventually they built him a temple with foundations. God gave them a king, and he made an unbreakable covenant that a king from David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever, and that through the king, God would abolish chaos and evil just like he did in creation. There were only a really few big rules that they had to follow so that God could live among them and save the world. And it could be basically summed up as love God and love other people like you love yourself. The Israelites were absolutely terrible at following these rules. And the natural punishment for the sins, just like in the Garden of Eden, was exile away from God and away from the land that God had given them. But last week, we saw something remarkable. There were hints that this exile wasn't just going to pay for Israel's sins, but instead Israel would be suffering for the sake of the whole world. And when all that happened, all sins would be forgiven, and the whole world would be united to God once again. The world would go full circle and be returned back to the way it was always supposed to be. But we also saw last week that they failed to do even that. And so God came into the world as a human in Jesus to accomplish what Israel was supposed to do. Because of Jesus, the exile was finally over after hundreds of years, and all the nations of the earth were united to God, just like before sin. But try putting yourself in the shoes of an Israelite living during the exile, though. 
you're living in Babylon, enslaved to a bunch of foreigners. And I think you'd be excused in thinking that God has abandoned his covenant with Israel. You're no longer living in the promised land. Your people have been brutalized, and there is not a king sitting on the throne of David. There'd been a time when Israel thought that Jerusalem was indestructible because God would always have a king in Jerusalem. God's temple is there, so he's not going to let anyone destroy it, right? But they took that for granted and went on sinning, and now they were carried off and Jerusalem was destroyed. And you're thinking about, about it as an Israelite, and if you have a few, few brain cells, you're probably thinking, yeah, God has good reason to abandon his covenant with us. We have broken our covenant with him every which way, and he put up with it for a solid 700 years. Now we are finally getting what we deserve. The story of the exile had all the makings of an irreversible and all-encompassing tragedy. There is no hope. There is no repentance. The time for judgment has come, and we are found wanting. There was once a time when God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But Israel has been so unfaithful that it led to what looked like a divorce, which frankly was a long time coming. The only hope left in the world was that God find some other nation that actually has its stuff together so that he can be present with them and save the world. But then you read the first verse of this passage, and it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It assumes the most basic vow that God made to Israel. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Israel sits in downcast and exile, but the very first words that God says gives a tantalizing hint that God is not done with Israel. They are still his people, despite everything that happened, no matter what they deserved, and the covenant is still on. Chapter 49 really puts the whole idea succinctly. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Israel said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. In other words, Israel says, Look around. Are you living in the same world we're living in? Sing for joy, O heavens? It sure as heck doesn't look like there's something to sing about. It doesn't look like we're still God's people. God has abandoned us to a foreign people, and we're enslaved just like before the covenant when we were in Egypt. So God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? Would she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even if she might forget, I will still not forget you, O Israel. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are ever before me. God's love for his people is so much more unconditional than a mother's love for her nursing child. And gosh, could you imagine a mother getting a little annoyed with her crying baby and saying, forget it, I'm done with you. No, God will comfort his people no matter how much they sin against him. There might come a time when you sin and you just can't imagine God forgiving you. It feels like God has withdrawn his presence from you and you don't know how to get it back. But God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he's always so ready to forgive. If God can put up with Israel's sin for two millennia and still he keeps his covenant with them, then he can put up with your sin. Just look at the cross where your name was engraved on the palm of his hand. That's why God says all people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows in them. But the word of our God endures forever. God takes his commitments seriously, even when his people don't. A really good human 
might give up on someone after 10 years or so of constantly sinning against him. But God's commitments are forever. He forgives the sins of his people so readily because he made promises to us that he would bless the world through us, and he won't let them be broken. But through the exile, God would actually not only forgive Israel, their sins, but the whole world of their sins. The word for highway in this chapter is a really important word in the book of Isaiah. It's actually a really rare word in Hebrew, but it shows up a whole lot in this book. And slowly the idea of this highway gets more and more meaning. In Isaiah 11, it says that this highway will be the one that carries Israel back from exile after her service is completed. God would, abandon, would not abandon them, but would miraculously save them, and they would travel on the highway back to Jerusalem. Then in Isaiah 19, we find out that the highway wouldn't just be used for Israelites, but that people from Assyria and Egypt, the places which had previously enslaved Israel, would come on the same highway to worship God. And suddenly, God's people wouldn't just be Abraham's family, but the blessing of God's presence would be extended to the whole world. Somehow, all that God said was supposed to happen through Israel ended up being accomplished through their punishment. God says that he will call Egypt my people and Assyria my inheritance, just like he said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's true. When Israel was scattered among the nations, that meant that all the nations came into contact with God through their synagogues. It says in Isaiah 49, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament, Assyria and Egypt. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Israel's uh, Israel's sufferings were far from pointless. They actually became a trophy for her, because through the exile, they united the whole earth back to God. And finally in this chapter, this highway is the one that God himself uses to come back to Jerusalem. He says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, made straight in the desert a highway for our God. This means that when Israel was exiled from Jerusalem, God was exiled also. He also had to return from exile on this highway, which means that this whole time, he wasn't back at home either. In other words, God didn't allow Israel to suffer the exile alone, but instead he suffered it with them. This is completely consistent with God's character. He never lets us suffer alone, but instead he suffers alongside us so much that he became a human. This was especially true on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was exiled, just like Israel was. But just like with Israel, God's return from exile was going to be much more than a return to the status quo. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. In Exodus 33, God promises that he will continue to travel with the Israelites despite what happened with the golden calf. At this point, Moses is curious and asks, please show me your glory, which sounds familiar to this passage. It basically says to show yourself to me in the ancient world. And God describes himself to Moses, but says, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So God covers up Moses in a rock with his hand and only lets him see his back. God is so holy that all Moses could possibly handle is seeing the afterglow as God passes by. If you see God's glory, you will die. God's glory here isn't just the really cool stuff that God does. It's the actual physical presence of God. 
so the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, really sounds like a scary verse. This isn't an isolated incident either. The idea that seeing God will make you die was one of the fundamental things that everyone knew about God, even if they knew practically nothing else. An angel, not God himself even, but just an angel, visits Samson's parents in Judges 13 when nobody really knew anything about God because they didn't really follow the law. (laughs) And when he leaves Samson's dad, he says, oh no, we're going to die, we just saw God. And then when Isaiah is commissioned the first time in Isaiah 6, he sees God sitting on his throne and he cries, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah also thought that he would die because he saw God. So God has to purify his lips so he can survive. Perhaps the most vivid illustration would be if you remember the scene in Indiana Jones when the Nazis finally find the Ark of the Covenant. They open it to see the glory of God's presence, and their faces melt off. It's actually pretty accurate biblically. So the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, isn't just saying God's going to do something cool and everyone will think it's cool. It's so much more serious than that. It's saying that God's glorious presence, which is so overwhelming that you instantly die, will be shown to everyone, and somehow they'll all be able to handle it. God is saying that the basic rules of the universe are about to change. The highway that takes Israel back from exile will also be the highway that God uses to ride into his royal city as the king of the whole world. God will arrive back in Jerusalem alongside his people through some amazing miracle, and it will be obvious to everyone that God rules over the whole world. Everything chaotic and evil and meaningless will be undone, and the just and righteous order that God created will return because now God rules the world. God's presence won't matter, won't anymore be a matter of following the law and making sure that you don't break the rules. It'll be just like in Eden, when the God of the universe was casually strolling with Adam in the garden. Instead of our faces melting off when we behold his glory, God will sit on his throne in his temple and we can go see him whenever we want. Stuff like weeding your farms and mourning your lost loved ones won't be a thing anymore because the evil which is so unnatural is no longer a part of the world. God has abolished such things. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has returned to his earth and has begun to rule. The presence of God, the glory of God, was really revealed to all nations because God became a human for us, and everybody saw it. So if you want to know who God is, you can just look at Jesus, who is God's glorious presence. Now at one time, that presence melted the faces off anyone who saw it, but now it exists in human form. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And John says, God became flesh, just like us, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, the glory of God. We have the presence of God with us, because, always, because he came and dwelt with us as a human. If you remember how John the Baptist says that he came to prepare the way of the Lord, he was quoting this passage, Isaiah 40. But he wasn't quoting a prophecy about some human king that comes to Israel. He was quoting a prophecy about how God would return to Israel and inaugurate his own new kingdom to end the exile. 
and he did it in the most surprising way, as a poor human carpenter dying on the cross. That's what the glory of God looks like, and we all have seen it together. The perfect representation of who God is, is Jesus on the cross. He says in chapter 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's return to the world has happened, and we get to be the guys with beautiful feet who bring the good news. We really are a part of the story because we get to announce it to everyone. And that's really exciting. But I think sometimes we get a little scared of telling anyone about God because I think we get in the wrong headspace. We think we have to have a logical debate with everyone we talk to. But the passage doesn't say, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who are able to logically prove the existence of God. No, we have a beautiful message and logical debates are pretty boring. It's also just not the way that anyone is really convinced of anything, really. I mean, there's a place for logic and proof and stuff. But I don't know about you. I don't remember the last time someone talked me into watching a TV show or playing a board game by a formal debate. No, what they do is they rave about how great it is, how you're missing out if you don't watch it, how much they enjoy it. It's the same thing with telling people about God. It's way better to tell them the beautiful story when you get the chance and then iron out the details later. And even if you do manage to convince them with a line of logic and stuff, at best, they'll come to church reluctantly, like, I guess I'm supposed to do this now. It's way better to share your, why you're so excited to be a Christian and why it's something worth doing, to show them why they should want to believe in God and how much he's done for you and how much he can do for them. What's great, too, is it doesn't require you to know all the answers to all the questions. All it does require is that you are genuinely excited to be a part of the people of God and that you have a real relationship with him. It's so much better if you really mean it when you tell them how awesome God is. But that means part of the work of sharing the gospel is first convincing yourself that God is awesome, which means taking time for devotion and prayer and practicing praising God. What this also does is it fulfills the biggest need that our culture has. It doesn't need a formal debate. God knows we already have enough of that. Our culture really needs some kind of meaning that makes our lives make sense and gives it a purpose. Our culture needs beauty, and we have the most beautiful story ever made. Our culture, I mean, look at all the art and music that's made today. There's a really popular piece of art that's just a banana duct taped to the wall. Or there's just like a red circle that goes for like thousands of dollars, just like on the wall. Look it up. It's supposed to make you think, hmm, what is art really? Is this beautiful? I don't know. <laughs> that's what we're competing with. We have the return of God to the world, setting the entire world right, sin, death, and evil being rightly punished, God's glory revealed, freedom from slavery, every tear wiped away from every eye, and the new heavens and the new earth, and we're competing with a big banana duct taped to a wall. I'd say that's a pretty big advantage. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs>